0: Welcome back to Allied, the podcast for everything you need to know about web and video accessibility. I'm your host, Elisa Lewis, and on today's episode, we're joined by Emily Yates to discuss the importance of access and inclusion for people with disabilities from both an ethical perspective and also a business perspective. Emily is an accessibility consultant and journalist living in the UK. Currently, she's an Inclusive Design Associate at CCD Design and Ergonomics. Emily also frequently presents and writes on disability issues, having fronted several documentaries for BBC Three and written for The Guardian, The Independent, and Telegraph Travel. She authored The Lonely Planet Guide to Accessible Rio de Janeiro, endorsed by the International Paralympic Committee. Emily has so much to share with us today, so let's dive in. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us on the Allied podcast. We recently had you at our virtual Access at Home event, and we're so glad to have you on the podcast and get to learn a little bit more about your story. I'd love to start our conversation learning more about your background. So I know that you're an accessibility consultant and journalist, and you also travel quite a bit. Um, It's a big part of your life. So I'd love to know how you got into these areas and how they all sort of tie together in terms of access and inclusion?
1: Yeah, okay, great first question. And and thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, So yeah, I'm I'm an access consultant, I'm a wheelchair user, and you're absolutely right. You know, traveling is a big passion of mine and something that I'm really keen to get back to as soon as we can. Um, Really, they all just came together quite organically, if I'm honest. Um, I had my first experience of kind of solo travel as a disabled person when I was 16 years old. I went to Southern Africa with a charity called JOLT, which stands for the Journey of a Lifetime Trust. And they take young people who are disabled or disadvantaged in some way on a literal journey of a lifetime. Um, So that was my first experience of traveling alone as a disabled person. But most importantly, it really taught me what my capabilities are as a disabled person rather than just what my limitations are. And I think so often in society, whatever society you're in, when it comes to disability, limitations are quite often the focus rather than capabilities. So that was an amazing thing for me to be able to experience at 16 years old. And I was keen to continue traveling uh, as often as possible, really, which eventually led me to um, going to university in London and applying to be a games maker at the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And I had an amazing experience there. And because of volunteering there and having that experience, I was then asked by the British Consulate in Rio de Janeiro to go over there and speak to some NGOs and charities around disability and access and inclusion. Uh, and from there, got offered a job to be an access consultant for the underground transport system for the 2016 Olympic and Paralympic Games. So really, it did just come together whilst I was travelling. I, I did get a job offer to be an access consultant. But I think it's really interesting, actually, that now a lot of the projects that I work on to do with transport and travel I work with the rail industry quite a lot airports so I'm really keen even in kind of the professional work that I do to keep thinking of this disabled traveler experience.
0: Absolutely that's pretty cool that it kind of all sort of fell into place um, during your travels. So I'd love to know um, you know kind of thinking along the lines of travel um, and also certainly you know some of the things that we do at 3Play, um, I'd love to hear like a little bit more about sort of the difference between physical access, um, digital access, and and sort of social access. Um, can you kind of describe the different types of access and, um, you know, which ones you think are, are easier to achieve?
1: Yeah, okay, another great question. So I think physical access is the one that When we think of disability and access and inclusion, that's the one that we're all most familiar with. You know, it's to do with making society uh, more accessible and inclusive for disabled people, whether that's making sure that a building has step free access for a wheelchair user, uh, making sure that reception desks are lowered, accessible bedrooms are available if you're in a hotel, all of these kind of things, they would class as physical access. Now, digital access is to do with how we really navigate the online world, the digital world. Um, and of course, has become much more paramount and important uh, as time has gone on, and particularly throughout the pandemic, you know, we're we're not all learning um. And working online, we're also purchasing online and consuming online a lot more. So making sure that your website's accessible in terms of its font, its colour contrast, whether or not it's set up to be used uh, by somebody who has a speech um, device that reads to them. All these kind of things, making sure that your videos are subtitled or even have InVision in the corner for people who use sign language, who are deaf or hard of hearing. There are so many different things that you can do digitally to actually say to people, deaf and disabled people, hey, we're inclusive and and we want your business. And so often I talk about um, something called the Purple Pound, which is the spending power of disabled households and here in the UK it's worth nearly 300 billion pounds a year is the purple pound Um, and quite often we think that access and inclusion is just a nice and an ethical thing to do but actually it's a great business model as well if you're accessible and you're inclusive then people are going to buy from your business and they're going to be loyal they're going to come back they're going to tell their deaf and disabled friends that they should be purchasing from you as well, or using your services. So it's a really savvy thing to do financially as well. And then social access is, I would say, a bit of a newer term and a newer concept. And to me, that's all to do with the mindset and the perception that surrounds disability. So going back to physical access, I quite often say I could go into the most physically accessible venue in the whole entire world. But if once I got there, once I got to a reception desk, for example, that was all lowered for me as a wheelchair user and everything that I wanted, and a member of staff treated me horribly because I'm disabled and didn't treat me like a paying customer or with any kind of respect, then actually because that social access wasn't there, that physical access would mean very little to me. So it's really important, again, for businesses to not just think about their physical and their dig- digital access, but to also think about the training and their education that they're giving their staff, to think about how they're respecting disabled people as customers and as consumers and as clients or even as colleagues. You know, how are you going to inclusively recruit? disabled people as members of staff and respect them socially as well. So there's a lot of different things to think about when it comes to access, but really, really interesting things. And if all can be used together in a matrix, then you're really winning.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned um, some of the training and that it's really important to make sure that staff and Um, You know, employees are sort of trained in uh, communicating and acting appropriately. Have you um, sort of encountered any um, training or any examples or experiences that where you've seen this done really well um, that maybe some of our listeners can can kind of benefit from?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I actually work with a charity, a disability awareness charity called Enhance the UK, um, and we run communication training specifically. Um, disability awareness training in general but a lot of it is focused on communication because a lot of the time going back to these members of staff a lot of the time they worry about how to communicate effectively and this worry about being patronizing or offensive quite often leads to people not saying anything at all so Really, the bottom line is you've got to train well through education and through awareness. But ultimately, you've got to put people at ease and build their confidence and their comfort in communication by giving them hints, tips and resources to be able to do so. So I yeah, I would really recommend for, for anybody who's listening to this to, to look up Enhance the UK and the training that we do and how it focuses on that importance of social access, because really that is the key to somebody having ultimately the most positive experience possible once they're inside your building or your establishment.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then, you know, I know we we touched on this topic a little bit, that sort of during a pandemic, um, you know, things are certainly different, um, to say the least. Yeah. But I'm curious, you know, connection is really more important than ever. Um, and how can we ensure that digital communication is accessible to everyone?
1: Yeah, okay. So... When we're thinking about communicating, whether at work or in our personal lives, so often we're using Zoom, you know, exactly what we're using today. And there are so many different ways in which just such a simple program can become more accessible to deaf and disabled people. In fact, to deaf people in particular. So first of all, make sure that you've got your camera on. You know, sometimes we like to sit in our dressing gowns and pretend that we're ready for work when actually we're not. But what's really important is you do show a visual of yourself because lip reading is so much easier. when It's, so, it's even possible when people can see you and are able to read your lips. So that's the first and probably most primary thing that you could do to really, really help people and to aid that access. Also something like putting... Um, a meeting on speaker view can be really really helpful because that image can be blown up so that again lip reading is a lot easier than if you've got 12 people on the screen and you're trying to focus on who's speaking and at what time zoom also now offers live captioning via a program i think it's called otter.ai and that allows live captioning to come up um, and be available and for transcripts to be available as well. So there are so many things that one program can do brilliantly. And actually, in this way, technology and digital communications have really gone a step forward and become more accessible than an old-fashioned phone call would have been that many deaf and hard of hearing people wouldn't have been able to access.
0: That's a great point. We've definitely seen, um, you know, a lot more technology become available, um, I think, you know, there's always that kind of delay or learning curve, um, yeah. sometimes it's, it's a little, the accessibility piece tends to fall a little bit behind, but we certainly yeah. have a lot more um, capability than, than we did, you know, several years ago. Um, I'd love to, you know, shift a little bit and talk a little bit more about disability inclusion in the workplace. Um, what have you seen in the physical workplaces that need to be changed to make access um, more available and to make uh, the just overall workplace more accessible and inclusive?
1: Oh, another interesting question. You're challenging me here. It's good. <laughs> um, quite often, to be totally honest with you, it's the simplest things that have the greatest impact. So. I'm just thinking of a few um, visits that I've done to to different businesses to do audits and things like that. Um, Even when you get to the building itself, if you've only got an intercom that can ring and use audio, if you're a deaf or hard of hearing visitor already, you're on the back foot because you're unable to access that. So something as simple as having like a text number underneath your intercom that people can get in touch with you by texting, is a huge accessible leap forward, of course, video and audio intercoms that used together would be even better, or having a member of staff to meet and greet when they knew that somebody was, was visiting that did have those access requirements, they would be great. But even something as simple as having a number to text so that somebody who's deaf or hard of hearing can say, hi, I'm here, can you let me in, please? such something that takes literally five minutes to write down and print off and put on but makes a huge difference again this is going to sound so simple but please don't fill your lifts and your accessible toilets up with baggage and uh, storage it's not a storage solution again it's something that sounds so obvious and is but Understandably, when businesses don't have somebody that's regularly using those lifts or their accessible toilets, it's seen as just an extra storage space, but it can come back very negatively on you if a disabled customer uh, or colleague is wanting to use those things as well. So those are some of the physical things that I'd change. But I think most importantly, the one thing that I'd say that I think needs the most adaptation is the way that we communicate at work and how we feel in disclosing our impairments, how we feel in terms of whether or not we believe that whoever we work for will be able to adjust to suit our impairments or will want to adjust reasonably to suit them. I think there's a lot of work done to be there to to be done there and again as i said earlier physical access is only one part of this yes it's great if you have that accessible intercom it's great if you're not filling your lift in your accessible toilet with storage but ultimately think about how you communicate and how you can make those conversations a lot easier how you can encourage disclosure of impairments um, and how you can build a more inclusive and a happier workforce in general is what I'd say.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think you made a really interesting point um, talking about the intercom, and it's a really simple practice, but something that we, you know, strive to to do um, in our work, and particularly, you know, from the marketing standpoint of just not relying on one sense mm. to. Um, you know, relay information. So, for for my for my context, thinking about things like alt text, where um, you know you have an image, but if someone has a visual impairment, the a screen reader can read it aloud, or it's yeah. the same idea with captioning. Um, you know, for someone who can't hear it, being able to read it, um, and it's just. Like you said, it's kind of these simple things, but making sure that the intercom also, you know, there's a way to text instead of just talk. Um, so it's yeah. a really good point, and I think a really sort of universal, uh, you know, way for us to think about being more accessible and more inclusive.
1: Absolutely. And you said it there, you said screen reader before I was I was speaking on one of the other questions and I, screen reader just totally went out of my mind. And I think I said speech equipment or something like that. <laughs> screen reader is what I meant.
0: <laughs> no worries. Do you have any advice for, you know, maybe someone at an organization who really understands the power and the benefits of accessibility, but maybe their colleagues don't um, quite understand the significance or the importance and how, how can, um, you know, people sort of get this buy-in and, and what can they do or say Mm. to really get the, you know, the importance of accessibility across?
1: Yeah, I think I think ultimately it's sad that this is still the case, but ultimately to get by in a lot of the time, what you've got to do is make a strong business case for that and show how financially it's a really savvy thing to do. And using things like the Purple Pound um, by showing how loyal disabled customers are in, in many cases, um, these kind of things really help people to realise That actually it's not just kind and ethical to be accessible, but it's a financially savvy move to make as well. I mean, when we're talking about 20% of the world's population, one in five people on estimate being disabled, then a business would have to be, I think, quite close minded to not realise how that could overturn a lot of the practices of the business by including those 20%, be it as colleagues or customers or advisors, in whatever capacity, opening those doors to that 20% is is a huge thing to be able to do.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm also curious if you can speak to kind of being an ally and maybe, you know, as a able-bodied or um you know hearing individual whatever the case may be how we can best support um, peers with disabilities and and be an advocate um but in a you know in a productive and empowering way
1: again brilliant question i think if you have a friend or a colleague or a family member who's disabled one of the best things that you can do is trust their lived experience of having that impairment um, and trust how they want to live their lives with that impairment and how they want to navigate society with that impairment. I think one of the mistakes that non-disabled people make in trying to be an ally leads to some controlling of how disabled people navigate their environment. And it's all very well-intentioned, which is lovely, But actually believing that that disabled person is is the expert in their own lived experience and that is correct and that's how it should be is a beautiful way to be an ally full stop. And then I think ultimately it, it fits with the social model of disability, this idea that actually it's the barriers in society that we need to remove rather than change the impaired body in any way to create accessible and inclusive opportunities. I think when people realise that, they realise that they've got a responsibility to be able to do something and they get quite excited about that. I think in the past, non-disabled people have maybe thought, well, disability rights are disabled people's worries and disabled people's issues and that's for them to sort out. Well, actually the social model of disability says, hey, we've all got something to to do here. We've all got a responsibility to change the way that society sees people with impairments and that actually society is the thing that's disabling those people, not their own bodies. And when we realise that there's a lot to be done there and that everybody can have a go at trying to remove some of those barriers, that really is quite an empowering thing for non-disabled people. So believe in that expert lived experience but also swot up on the social model of disability and see what you can do in your local areas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Those are great suggestions. Um, You know, one of the other questions that I had in mind is a lot of the times underrepresented groups are expected to sort of take on the labor of the education and the advocacy Mm Um, so, you know, I know that's kind of a little bit of a similar topic, but I'd love to hear kind of if, if you have anything else to say on this idea and how, um, how it sort of feels or how it can be productive for, um, you know, these other groups who maybe are not disabled to kind of be in a position of education advocacy as well, and how they can do so in a way that is, um you know, appropriate so that they're also allowing the voices to be heard of those who have lived the experience?
1: Yeah, so there's two points that I'd probably make here. The first one being that non-disabled people and disabled people can absolutely work in harmony (laughs) to correct certain issues and to fight the good fight. Um, Again, I think for a lot of non-disabled people, they think, oh, well, I I can't advise on certain issues. I'm not I'm not justified to do that. That's a disabled person's job. And again, I think that comes from really well-intentioned, not wanting to step on other people's toes, uh, for lack of a better term. But actually, we as disabled people need non-disabled people to be on our side. We need people to, to fuel this campaign and fuel this fire for access and inclusion. So we're not ever saying don't join in that fight. We're just saying don't join in that fight so much that it clouds who we are. Let us lead that fight in a way because that's really important. There's a wonderful phrase that is so often used in the disabled community, nothing about us without us and that's all we're really saying. And I think the second thing, a really important point that I'd like to make is please, if you use a disabled person in an advisory capacity, if you ask disabled people to do speaking events, whatever it might be, please pay them for their work. Please don't expect them to volunteer for you. There's a bit of a problem at the moment with, I think, still this expectation that Disabled people don't work. They don't contribute. They don't want to have money to spend to be able to consume all of these kind of things, and quite often, when disabled people are asked to do work around access and inclusion, they're not offered payment for that, and that really does need to change. Yeah, that's
0: a really interesting point. Um, I h- hadn't really heard about that, um, but I can certainly see that, um, and. I'm kind of curious along the similar lines of, you know, there's obviously a lot of initiative right now for diversity, equity, inclusion, um, you know, in the workplaces and and beyond. And how, um, you know, how can workplaces involve people with disabilities and um, make them, you know? feel more sort of at the, at the front of things without making it seem like it's, you know, some sort of agenda or, mm. um, sort of going through the motions of, you know, some sort of trendy type thing to do. Um, how can they, you know, do it in a really authentic and genuine way? Um, you know, obviously it's a slow process, um, mm. to, you know, become more inclusive and diverse um, in the workplace, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of how how places of work and and otherwise can get there in an authentic way. Mm.
1: And I think you've hit the nail on the head there by saying slow process. I think really that's what is the most authentic and the most real way of doing things, admitting and being honest that to do this right and to do this correctly It is a slow process. It's going to take time. It's going to take thought. It's going to take advice. It's probably going to take getting a few things wrong now and again and having to backtrack and do them again. That's all okay. Nobody is expecting a business to turn around in two seconds and say, hey, we're accessible. In fact, that's one of the worst things that you can do. Advertise that you are accessible and inclusive and then not be. The amount of times I've turned up to hotels, for example, that have said that they're accessible for me as a wheelchair user. And then there's five steps up to the front door or the bathroom's far too small for me to be able to use it. These things are much more damaging than actually admitting that it's a slow process. You want to do it well. You want to do it properly. You want to get the correct advice from your disabled colleagues, from external disabled experts, for example, you want to bring trainers in, whatever it might be, just being real about that and taking your time and doing it properly, I think is all that people are asking for.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um have you um kind of come across a way where maybe somebody has made a mistake, you know, like you said, you're you're gonna, gonna make mistakes in this process. Um, what's the best way to sort of handle this um again in an authentic way you know how have you ever experienced anything where you were just really impressed
1: with how a mistake
0: was kind of handled or remedied
1: oh good question I can't think of anything off the top of my head I don't think but one thing that I will say is what I'm really impressed with is when non-disabled people don't get defensive about the mistakes that they make whether that's in terms of the language and terminology that they use or the fact that they've assumed assistance is required rather than asked first whatever it might be if somebody's actually kind of aware enough to be able to put their hands up and say hey I'm sorry that was that was my bad that was on me I'll do better next time that's really beautiful to me and that's a way that we can really start working in harmony as a community again nobody's trying to trip each other up i think sometimes there's this misconception that uh access and inclusion it's scary because we're going to get tripped up and we're going to have to spend all this money or whatever it might be that's quite often not the case people are just wanting you to do what you can with the best of intention. I am fully aware that somebody might trip up when they're using language to describe me, especially if they've not had experience of disabled people before, either personally or professionally. I'm well aware of that. And actually, I'm okay with that too, as long as people are aware, willing to be educated and do better next time. So I think for me, that's, that's when a mistake is, is righted in the correct way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, taking things as a learning experience rather than a criticism um, can really benefit everybody. Um, in in this case, and in many other aspects of life as well. Um, I want to ask um, one of um, one of the questions I love asking um, guests on the podcast is: if you had one takeaway piece of advice for our listeners, what would it be?
1: Oh one one bit of advice. I think I think the thing that's really important at the moment is building empathy, not sympathy, around disability. And that comes into social access, doesn't it? Really? Um it's what we train on at Enhance the UK. This this really important point of learning the reason behind behaviours, the reason behind why somebody might want to navigate society in a certain way uh, and understanding it as much as you possibly can rather than feeling pity that somebody's got a certain impairment or needs to do things in a certain way or perhaps needs to take a bit more time to do something in a certain way. So learning empathy and patience rather than sympathy and pity I think is such an important thing to be able to do to then go a little bit further within your access and inclusion goals and aspirations and reach them a little bit quicker. I think as soon as empathy is built, that becomes much easier.
0: Absolutely. Can you, um, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you give an example um, maybe of of a little bit more tangible of what um, empathy versus sympathy looks like?
1: So for me, Um, just to give you an example, instead of somebody saying to me, as soon as they met me, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you're disabled, I'm sorry you're a wheelchair user, and just kind of putting their assumptions onto my experience, I think to me, they're negative assumptions, especially of my experience. To me, a lot of the time, that's what sympathy looks like for disabled people. And what people forget to do is try and create some kind of understanding around disability. Um, It's about thinking a bit more intellectually about the questions that you ask as well, not just diving in with something like, oh, so what happened to you then? But actually trying to gain the information that you need rather than the nosy information that you want to know. Again, I think that's a much more empathetic way of looking at things. Um, and I think for businesses in particular, it's about understanding that disabled people are hugely capable and have great capacity to do brilliant work and to make your business fly. I think a lot of the time, sympathy surrounding disability assumes that disabled people aren't capable, they don't have capacity and they won't uh, enrich your business or your livelihood in any way which is just totally untrue so I think sometimes when we think about sympathy we just think about somebody going oh and rubbing your shoulder and saying poor you which absolutely is the case but it goes a little bit further than that as well to just our negative assumptions that surround disability which is so often shrouded in sympathy and a very distanced people just think, oh, well, that's not worth me engaging with. Whereas the empathetic side of things to do with disability for me has engagement at its core.
0: Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. Thank you so much for, for sharing that
1: insight. No problem.
0: So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the work that you're doing currently. You know, I know we heard a little bit more about your travels and what you've done in the past. Um, what are you up to these days?
1: Yeah, so I still work as an access consultant. So the the gig in Rio for Metro Rio, the underground transport system, Um led me to brilliant things back here in the uk so i now work as an access consultant for ccd design and ergonomics and they're a consultancy firm in london um, and we've been working on some brilliant projects recently i've just finished uh, updating the access and inclusion standards for heathrow airport Um, which bring up some really great requirements, not just for disabled passengers, but also disabled staff and their experience working for Heathrow as a business. So we're really, really proud of that and to have worked with Heathrow on that. And I've just started some work Um, with a museum as well. I'm not sure if I'm able to mention the museum, but looking at some really cool interactive ways in which exhibits and content at museums can be made accessible and inclusive for anyone who visits. So yeah, some really exciting stuff going on.
0: Awesome. And as we wrap up our conversation, I am wondering where can our listeners find you online?
1: Okay, so um, my website is emilyroseyates.co.uk. I am Emily R. Yates on Twitter, M. R. Yates on Instagram. Um, and then I've got LinkedIn as well. I'm Emily Rose Yeats on LinkedIn. So it will be lovely to connect with people, um, whether or not they're looking for collaborations, um, someone to speak or even just for a chat around access and inclusion. It would be lovely to hear from people.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Emily. It was great chatting with you, as always, and, and great to have you on the Allied podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was a, a great chat. You've uh, challenged me a little bit there. It was really, really good.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening to Allied. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest on accessibility, visit www.3playmedia.com allied alliedpodcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.